Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin. We are continuing to read at page 172 for this reading, which is Lecture 12. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discount are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Lecture 12 Verse 12 Go and proclaim these words towards the north, and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. The prophet, after having shown that the tribe of Judah deserved a heavier punishment than the ten tribes, and having mentioned the cause that they had seen their brethren severely chastised and were not moved, now turns his discourse to the Israelites themselves, or the ten tribes, and promises that God would be propitious to them. The kingdom of Israel had now been overthrown, and the people had been banished by Assyria, Persia, and Media. They had been scattered, and the name of the kingdom had been obliterated. The land had been often laid waste, and the kingdom partly existed, as four tribes only were first driven to exile. But at length, the very name of a kingdom ceased to exist, and they were all, as I have said, led away into captivity. Hence the prophet is bidden to address his words towards the north. For though the greater part of the people dwelt then in the east, Yet as they had been banished as by the Assyrians, God had a regard to the capital of the monarchy in bidding the prophet to address those whom the enemies had led away to the north. Cry then, not so much on account of the distance of the place, but that the Jews who were deaf might hear him crying. For the prophet was bidden to speak not only for the sake of the Israelites, but that through them he might set before the Jews the mercy of God, if only they return to a sound mind. Now the import of the whole is that though the Israelites had been rebellious and had turned away from God, yet pardon was ready for them if they returned. What the prophet means by the word return, we have already in part explained, and we shall have to speak on this subject more fully elsewhere. He then requires repentance and promises that God would be propitious to them in case they returned to him. He afterwards adds, I will not make my face, or rather my wrath, to fall upon you. For this latter meaning is the most appropriate. 
God had already severely punished their sins. For what can happen to a people more grievous than to be banished from their own country and then to be oppressed by cruel tyranny? They yet suffered a a heavier punishment, for the worship according to the law had been taken away from them. They had been repudiated by God. They had lost that glory by which they thought that they excelled all all other nations in having been chosen as God's peculiar people. All these things have been entirely lost. In what sense, then, does God declare that he would not be angry with them? By this way of speaking, the prophet simply means that God would not be irreconcilable, as though he had said, My wrath shall not dwell or shall not lie upon you but I will mitigate the punishment which I have inflicted. Hence, I do not disapprove of Jerome's rendering, I will not make steady. Though when he adds faith, he does not sufficiently set forth the meaning of the prophet. But this may be admitted, I will not make steady my wrath upon you. That is, my wrath shall not lie or dwell on your heads, so as wholly to overwhelm you. God's wrath had already fallen upon them but in such a way that there was still some hope of deliverance. God then denies that the calamities by which he had chastised their sins would be fatal, for he would withdraw his hand and not pursue them to the last extremity. The meaning then is that if the people returned to God, they would obtain pardon, because God of his own free will invited them and promised that the punishment which he had inflicted on account of their sins would be only for a time. Footnote. Verse 12. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, apostate Israel, saith Jehovah. I will not cause my wrath to fall on you. Verse 13. Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast... I'm sorry. For For merciful am I, saith Jehovah, I will not reserve it forever. That non-English word commonly rendered faith means sometimes wrath or anger is evident. See Psalm 21:9, Lamentation 14, I'm sorry, 4:16. God is said to have his face against the wicked. Uh, Psalm 34:16, and to make his face to shine on his people. This accounts for the word being taken sometimes as it were in a bad sense. He has an angry as well as a smiling face. The rendering of the Septuagint is, I will not set firm, non-English word, my face upon you. Of the Vulgate, I will not turn away my face from you. Of the Syriac and Arabic, I will not harden my face against you. And of the Targum, I will not send my wrath upon you. The last comes nearest to the Hebrew. Blaney's version is a paraphrase. I will not look down upon you with a lowering brow, and so is his version of the last line, I will not keep displeasure in view forever. Our version in both instances is much to be preferred. End footnote. God further confirms this truth by mentioning what his nature is. For merciful am I, and I will not retain wrath forever. The promise was special in case the people returned. God now adds a general truth by way of confirmation, that he was disposed to show mercy and that he would readily forgive for his mercy's sake. Since God then is such and cannot deny himself, 
There is no reason why a sinner should despair and thus close up the way that he should not, in his penitence, implore God's mercy. We may hence gather a profitable doctrine that whenever unbelief lays hold on our minds so that we cannot apply to our benefit the promises of God, this should ever be remembered by us that God is merciful. As God then is so gracious that he reserves not wrath forever, but that it is only for a time, we ought to entertain hope, and corresponding with this is what is said in the Psalms. A moment is he in his wrath, and life is in his goodness and mercy. Psalm 35 As though he had said that God's wrath soon passes away, provided we repent, but that he shows his mercy through all ages. For this is what is meant by the word life. He then goes on, verse 13, Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. And ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. God lays down here a condition, lest hypocrites, relying on his goodness, should become more and more hardened, and yet think that he is bound, as it were, to, to them. For they usually reason thus, God is so kind that he recalls us to himself, and of his own free will invites even sinners, we may therefore easily settle matters with him. Thus hypocrites by false thoughts delude themselves, thinking that they can elude God, since he, th- since he seeks nothing else but to restore sinners to himself. Hence, with the promise of favor, there ought ever to be connected an exhortation to repentance. God then reminds here the Israelites that they were greatly deceived if they thought that they could, without any difficulty, obtain pardon. Hence he says, Know thine iniquity. The particle ak, ak, may be rendered only or but or yet. I prefer the second meaning, but, for an exception, as I have said, is here added. Lest the Israelites slumbered in their vices, if they persuaded themselves that God was, as it were, in their power and subject to their will. We hence see that the prophet, modifying what he had said, introduces this sentence. But in the meantime, know thine iniquity, Otherwise thou canst expect no peace with God. Then these words follow. Because thou hast acted wickedly against Jehovah thy God. By these words the prophet proves that the Israelites were guilty, lest they suppose that they could be evasions escape that they could by evasions escape the wrath of God. For we know that often even those who are conscious of their guilt are not willing to confess their sins. And it is strange that men are so besotted as ever to contend with God. On this account, the prophets, when they exhorted the people to repent, at the same time brought to light their sins. Were there in men frankness and honesty, there would be no need thus to charge them. But as they either boldly deny their sins, or are so callous as to be moved by no fear, it is necessary necessary to prick them sharply and even deeply to wound them. This is what the prophet now does. Thou, he says, hast done wickedly against thy God, as though he had said, I do not now in vain remind thee to own thy sins, for God himself condemns thee. Think not thou that thou canst gain anything by thy subterfuges. 
He mentions also particulars, that he might come into closer quarters with them. Thou hast dispersed, he says, or scattered thy ways to strangers under every shady tree. He again compares the Israelites to strumpets, who commonly so prostitute themselves that they ramble from one place to another, invite and allure all they meet with. The prophet then says that the Israelites had thus dispersed themselves. He speaks delicately on an indelicate subject. But what he means is that the Israelites were not content with one kind of superstition or with one idol, but blended together as many superstitions as they could and borrowed false notions from all quarters. They were like a rambling strumpet who prostitutes herself to all men indifferently. And strangers he calls all their fictitious gods, for, I, for as I have often said, they ought to have regarded him as their husband. When they ought to, I'm sorry, when therefore the Israelites turned away to other gods, they became like a woman who leaves her husband and prostitutes herself to any she can find. It is indeed a most common thing for those who forsake the true worship of God to seek for themselves various errors from all quarters and to abandon themselves unreservedly to all kinds of superstitions. He at length adds, And thou hast not hearkened to my voice. By this fact the prophet enhances their sin, for they had been instructed in the doctrine of the law and understood the right way of salvation. How then was it that they thus polluted themselves with so many superstitions? It could not have been attributed to ignorance. It was then their manifest rebellion against God. The prophet then shows that they had been disobedient and intractable, and that they had relapsed into idolatry and pernicious errors because they had shaken off the yoke of God and suffered not themselves to be ruled and guided by his word. Footnote. But yet know thine iniquity, that, that against Jehovah thy God hast thou rebelled, for thou hast diversified thy ways for strangers under every green tree, and to my voice ye hearkened not, saith Jehovah. The word, non-English word, is rendered by the early versions and the Targum, but, or, but yet, or, nevertheless. Virum, verumantanen. The third line is thus explained by Parkhurst, Thou hast run over various heathen nations in their several idolatries. And this they did, while they refused to attend to the voice of God. To attend to, rather than, than to obey, is what is meant. So the Vulgate and the Syriac, My voice ye heard not, or as the firmer, former, thou didst not hear. Editor. End footnote. We now then perceive the meaning of this verse. God first requires a confession of sins from the Israelites, and thus he sets forth how available that return would be, which he had previously mentioned. For until a sinner would be, which he had previously mentioned, I'm sorry, for a, for until a sinner knows his sinfulness, he will never really and from the heart return to God as the beginning of repentance is the confession of guilt. He then proves them to have been guilty, that he might cut off from them every pretense for evasion. He mentions in the third place specific sins, that he might hold them as it were fast bound, even that they had polluted themselves with superstitions and that they had become not only like an adulterous woman who follows another man, but also like filthy strumpets who run here and there and make no difference between men known or unknown. 
he shows in the last place that all this happened through mere obstinacy. For they had cast aside every regard for God, though he had given them his law and sent the prophets as its faithful interpreters so that they understood what God approved and was what was just and right. The reason then why they went astray was that they closed their ears to God's word and suffered not themselves to be ruled by it, but became wholly unteachable. Let us go on. Verse 14. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Jeremiah repeats the same thing in other words, but God by so many words shows clearer how ready he would be to grant pardon provided the Israelites really repented. It would have been enough for God to testify once that he would be reconcilable. But seeing that they were slow and hard to believe, he proceeds in the same strain. It is a wonderful forbearance and kindness that God, finding his favor neglected and as it were rejected through the sloth of men, should yet persevere and invite them again and again. What man would thus patiently bear the loathing of his favor and kindness? But we see that God does not immediately reject the tardy and the slothful, but adds new stimulants that he might at length move them, though this may seem more than necessary. How great is our torpidity! Were not God daily to urge us, how little attention would any of us give to his admonitions? It is therefore no wonder that he, pardoning our tardiness, should again and again invite us to repentance, which we find is done continually in the church. This, then, is the reason why the prophet now repeats the same thing. Return now, ye rebellious children. For he had said before, Return thou rebellious Israel. He then adds, For I am husband to you. Some regard B-O-L in the sense of being wearied. When found here, B-O-L-T-I, Beckham. I have been wearied by you. But this meaning does not comport with this passage. Footnote. Nor is there an instance of such a meaning. Literally it is, for I have been married with or to thee. When this verb is followed by a non-English word, as in chapter 31, 32, this is its meaning. But when followed by a different non-English word, as in 1 Chronicles 4, 22, it means to rule or to exercise dominion. The Vulgate is, for I am thy husband. The Targum gives the meaning, for I have chosen you. The Septuagint went astray, for I will rule, for I will rule over you. Editor and footnote. More correctly, then, have others rendered the words, I am Lord to you. But this Lord is not to be taken indefinitely as in Latin, for it properly means a husband who is a Lord to his wife. God, then, no doubt, continues the same comparison that of a marriage, which has already been often mentioned. For he charges the Israelites with adultery because they had departed from him. Hence it is that he says, I am your husband. He had previously said, though a person, when he repudiates his wife and she be married to another, will never again be reconciled to her, yet I am ready to forgive your perfidy and wantonness. Only observe chastity hereafter, and I will deal kindly with you. Similar is this passage. I am your husband. 
though I have repudiated you. He had indeed said that he had given them a bill of divorce, and thus testified as by a public document that there was no longer any connection between him and that people, for exile, for exile was a kind of divorce. But he says now, I am your husband, for though I have been grievously offended with you, because you have broken your pledged faith, I yet remain in the same mind, so as to be ready to be your husband. We now then perceive the real meaning of the prophet. Despair might have laid hold on the Israelites so as to dread that access to which the prophet had invited them, but that no terror might hinder them to repent. God here declares that he would become their husband, and that he had not forgotten that relationship with which he had once favored them. The sum of what he says is, I have once embraced you with the love of a husband. Ye have indeed become alienated from me, but return, and I am ready to forgive and to receive you, as though ye had always been faithful to me. Again will I take you, he says, and then he adds, one from the city, two from the family. Deserving of a special notice is this passage, for God shows that they were not to wait for one another, and also that that though the whole body of the people rotted in their sins, yet a few would return to him, and that he would be reconciled to them. This was a point most necessary to be taught, for God's covenant was in common with the whole seed of Abraham. They might then have concluded that the covenant was extinct, except he gathered together the whole people, for he had not chosen one or two, or a hundred or a thousand, but all the seed of Abraham. Since then the promise, without exception, was common to all, any one might thus reason, What connection have I but God? I'm sorry, what connection have I with God, except as one born of the race of Abraham? But I am not alone, for we are all the children of Abraham. Yet I see that none none turn to God, so I must perish with the rest of the people. Now that this thought should not hinder the godly, he says, I will take one from a city, two from a family. Footnote. The word is taken sometimes in a limited sense, and means what we understand by family, but is here evidently a more extended meaning and signifies a tribe, a community, for it includes more than a city. Such is this meaning in chapter 8.3 and in Amos 3.1. It comprehends the whole community of Israel. It is rendered from a tribe by the Septuagint, but improperly kindred, by the Vulgate and the Targum. It no doubt means sometimes kindred, but not evidently in this place. Editor. End footnote. That is, if only one come to me from a city, he shall find an open door. If two only from a tribe come to me, I shall receive them. We now apprehend the design of the prophet. Interpreters indeed explain one from a city as meaning that thou... I'm sorry, that though the multitude should perish, yet God would not deny forgiveness to three or four, but they teach not what is especially worthy of notice, that two or three are mentioned because this thought, as it has been said, might have perplexed them, that is, that they had been all in common chosen as a holy people. What is here taught may be useful to us in the present day. For we see many foolishly excluding themselves from the hope of salvation and seeking no access to God because they have a regard to one another and the great mass hold, 
and the great mass hold them entangled. How is it under the papacy that so many pertinaciously resist God, even because they think themselves safely hid in the multitude? We also find among us that some are in a, are a hindrance to others. Let this truth be ever remembered, that when God stretches forth his arms, he is ready to receive not only all were they with one con- one consent to come to him, but also two or three, even from one city or from a whole people. He adds, I will cause you to come to Zion. This had been said once before. God intimates that their exile would be temporary, that the Israelites would again be made partakers of his inheritance if they returned to God in sincerity and truth. It follows verse 15. And I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with the knowledge and understanding. Here God promises that he would so provide for the salvation of his people after their return from exile that they should not again perish. For the cause of God's vengeance ought to be observed, which is expressed in the fifth chapter of Isaiah. My people, he says, have been led captive because they had no knowledge. Therefore the grave has widened its soul or its throat. Footnote. Rather, itself, for the word often rendered soul, has sometimes this meaning. See note on verse 11, editor. End footnote. He then says that the cause of the people's ruin was because instruction had ceased among them, and pastors had become mute dogs or robbers. Here, on the other hand, God declares that he would give them faithful pastors who who would discharge in a befitting manner their office. I indeed allow that that under this term are included faithful and wise magistrates, but he especially refers to prophets and priests, whose office it is in particular to reform idolatry. Footnote. Blaney, following the Targum, renders pastors rulers and feed rule. But this is to interpret and not to translate, as the words have never strictly these meanings, though what are sometimes to be understood by pastors or elders and by feeding, ruling, or governing. But the interpretation in this instance seems not to be correct, and for the reason here assigned by Calvin. It is indeed the opinion of Henry, Scott, Adam, Clark, and others that both civil and ecclesiastical pastors are intended, and if so, knowledge may be applied to the latter, and wisdom to the former. The Septuagint have omitted wisdom, and retain only knowledge. The Targum has knowledge and wisdom, the Vulgate, knowledge and doctrine, the Syriac, knowledge and prudence, and Blaney, knowledge and discretion. The verb non-English word means to feed on, um, or as here, to feed with. It means also to feed itself as a beast does, Isaiah 11:7. End footnote. We hence learn that the church cannot continue without having faithful pastors to show the way of salvation. The well-being of the church then is secured when God raises up true and faithful teachers to proclaim his truth. But when the church is deprived of sound teachers, all things soon fall into ruin. For God no doubt intimates that, that by this promise that he would not only be the deliverer of his people so as to restore them from exile, but that he would be also their perpetual guardian after the people had returned to their own country. It hence follows that the church of God is not only begotten by means of holy and godly pastors, 
but that its life is also cherished, nourished, and confirmed by them to the end. As it is not enough for civil order to be once set up, except the magistrates continue in their office, so nothing is more ruinous to the church than for God to take away faithful pastors. It cannot indeed be that people will return to God unless prophets be first sent. But God speaks here of a continued course of instruction and of a well-regulated government in the church, as though he had said, I will not only give you prophets to lead you from your wanderings to me and to restore you to the way of salvation, but I will also continually set over you sound and faithful teachers. But we must notice that those who preside cannot rightly discharge their office unless they are endued with wisdom. God also intimates his paternal love when he says that good pastors would be dear to him. It afterwards follows verse 16, And it shall come to pass, when ye be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more. The ark of the covenant of the Lord Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. <coughs> Interpreters have perverted this verse, for none of them have understood the design of the prophet. The Jews, for the most part, have adduced frigid and far-fetched glosses, that they would no more bring out to battles the Ark of the Covenant, as no enemy would invade their land. They think, then, that a peaceable state is promised to the people, as they would be constrained by no hostile force to carry the Ark of the Covenant here and there. But we clearly see that the words mean no such thing. It is, not, it is then a comment wholly foreign to the subject. Others say that what is said must be applied to the time of the Messiah, and none even of the Jews deny this, for it afterwards follows that the Israelites would return with a tribe of, with a tribe of Judah. This had not yet been fulfilled. It hence follows that the prophet here predicts of the kingdom of Christ. But the Jews, while allowing this, do not understand that anything is said of the abrogation of legal ceremonies. It has yet been thought by almost all Christians that the prophet here teaches us that when Christ should come, an end would be put to all those shadows of the law, so that there would be no more any Ark of the Covenant as the fullness of the Godhead would dwell in Christ. This indeed is a view which seems plausible, but the meaning of the prophet, as I think, is wholly different. For he refers here to that divorce or division which had for a long time existed between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Though the kingdom of Israel, as to the number of its men, largeness of territory, and wealth, was more flourishing and prosperous than the kingdom of Judah. Yet there remained these advantages to the Jews, that they had a temple built according to God's command, that its place had been chosen by God, that they had the Ark of the Covenant as a symbol of God's presence. <coughs> Hence, there was contention between the kingdom of Juba and the ten tribes. The Israelites were elated on account of their number and their riches, and other temporal advantages, and the Jews gloried in their temple and the Ark of the Covenant. And what now does the prophet say? He declares that such would be the concord between the Israelites and the Jews, that the Jews would no more say the Ark of the Covenant, the temple of God, for God would be present with them all. And the prophet proceeds to confirm more fully what I, what I have just said. It is therefore necessary to add the two following verses. 
He then says, verse 17, At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord. To Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. Verse 18, In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance unto your fathers. We now understand more clearly what I've already said. The, the prophet promises here that there would be concord between the ten tribes and the kingdom of Judah when both returned from exile. As though he had said that their condition would be better than it ever had been. For the seed of Abraham had been torn as it were asunder, and the people whom God intended that they should continue in a holy union had become divided in the most shameful manner. We indeed know that there had been inveterate hatred between the Jews and the Israelites. As then there had been such disgraceful division for a long time between the children of Abraham, the prophet now shows what would be the fruit of exile. For after having been for a time chastised by the Lord, they would return to their own country. Not to entertain the same emulation as had existed, but to unite together in calling on God in order that the Jews might be as brethren to the Israelites, and the Israelites might cultivate mutual concord with the tribes of Judah. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that as Thou at this day mercifully sparest us, sparest us, when yet in various ways we provoke Thy displeasure, O grant that we may not harden ourselves against Thy chastisements, but that Thy forbearance may lead us to re repentance, and that also Thy scourges, scourges may do us good, and that we may so truly turn to Thee, that our whole life may testify that we are in our hearts changed. And may we also stimulate one another that we may unite together in rendering obedience to thy word and each of us strive to glorify thy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as our complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts or on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you'll be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address that you've supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrdb.com with the word remove in the subject line. 
Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of this message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. <coughs> Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading. And remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And Second Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. <laughs>